so that election was decided way sooner than I expected. It might get drawn out and contested for a while by a certain someone, but Joe Biden is projected to become the 46th president of the United States. He will be sworn in on January 20th, 2021, and he'll become the new oldest president at 77 years old, passing Donald Trump, who was 70 years old at his inauguration. His vice president-elect, Kamala Harris, will be the first woman, the first African-American, and the first South Asian-American to serve as vice president. However, contrary to popular belief, she will not be the first person of color to hold the position. This distinction is held by a member of the Kaw Nation, a Native American tribe from Oklahoma and Kansas. Native Americans have a long history in U.S. politics. In 1817, Democratic-Republican John Floyd from Virginia, who was of Powhatan descent, became the first Native American in the House of Representatives. In 1870, Republican Hiram Revels from Mississippi became the first Native American in the Senate. Revels, who was of mixed African and Lumbee descent, also holds the distinction of being the first black senator. Today, while there aren't any incumbent Native American senators, there are four Native American representatives, Republicans Tom Cole and Mark Wayne Mullen from Oklahoma, and Democrats Sharice Davids from Kansas and Deb Holland from New Mexico. In addition, Republican Yvette Harrell was elected in 2020 and will take office in January. The U.S. government has historically had a rocky relationship with Native Americans. The first encounters between Native Americans and European settlers were often violent and eventually deadly, with disease killing 90% of the original indigenous population after first contact with Europeans. In the mid-1800s, thousands of southeastern Native American tribes were forcibly moved out west on the Trail of Tears. If separating the natives from their homes wasn't bad enough, the U.S. government then began moving them onto reservations in order to free up fertile land for Americans moving out west. Many of these reservations still exist today, and while some have become wealthy due to the presence of casinos, other reservations remain very poor, and many are plagued by food shortages, alcoholism, and suicide. Around the turn of the century, a common sentiment emerged among many Americans. Kill the Indian, save the man. In essence, this meant that Native Americans should be afforded equal rights in exchange for adopting Western culture and assimilating into American society. Now, this idea was very controversial among Native Americans themselves. Some believed it was the only feasible path towards coexistence with white Americans, while others believed that Native American culture was essential to their lives. One of the most prominent Native supporters of assimilation would go on to become a reasonably successful politician, serving in the House of Representatives, the Senate, and even as Vice President of the United States. I'm going to tell you all about him, right now, on Historia Obscura.
welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 23rd episode of this podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. Special thank you to Patreon subscriber Sodak Zach. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. Charles Curtis was born on January 25, 1860, in Topeka, Kansas Territory, to a white father and a mother of Kaw, Osage, Potawatomi, and French descent. His mother died when he was three years old, and his father had gone to serve in the Union Army in the Civil War, so he lived with his maternal grandparents on the Kaw Reservation for most of his childhood. When Curtis was eight years old, the Kaw Reservation was attacked by a hundred Cheyenne warriors. The ensuing skirmish was bloodless, and it ended after Kaw soldiers gave coffee and sugar to the Cheyenne as a peace offering. However, before the battle ended, a tribal interpreter named Joe Jim had left on a horse with Curtis to seek assistance from the state government. The young Curtis became a local celebrity known as Indian Charlie. As a teenager, Curtis moved off the reservation to live with his white paternal grandparents in the city of Topeka. He attended Topeka High School, which would later influence his views on Native Americans receiving a mainstream education. After graduating from high school, Curtis independently studied law and was admitted to the Kansas State Bar in 1881. In 1884, he married his wife, Annie Baird, and they had three children. In 1885, he was elected as the Shawnee County Prosecutor, a job he held until 1889. In 1892, Charles Curtis was elected as a Republican to the U.S. House of Representatives from Kansas's 4th District defeating Democratic nominee E.V. Wharton. His most notable work in the House was his sponsorship of the Curtis Act of 1898, which expanded the provisions of the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act, passed in 1887, was designed to assimilate Native Americans by subdividing reservations into individual family plots. Native Americans would also be given Western food, Western clothing, Western education, and would be encouraged to adopt Christianity. As I mentioned earlier, this was essentially to kill the Indian and save the man, which was, and still is, a very controversial idea. In 1899, Curtis was redistricted to Kansas's first district, where he served until 1907. 
In that year, he was appointed by the Kansas legislature to fill a vacant U.S. Senate seat. Back then, that was how senators were elected, as opposed to being elected by regular citizens like what happened a week ago. In 1912, the Kansas legislature, dominated by Democrats at that point, voted out Curtis. The next year, the 17th Amendment was passed, meaning that senators would now be elected by popular vote. In 1914, Curtis was again elected to the Senate, and in December of 1915, he became the Senate Minority Whip. He served on the Committee of Indian Depredations, continuing to support assimilation of Native Americans. Just like his friend, President Calvin Coolidge, Curtis was a man of few words. However, he was also, without question, a political genius. As Republican whip, he was able to sway liberals and progressives to vote for Republican policies. In 1919, the Republicans took control of the Senate, and Curtis became the Senate Majority Whip. In 1923, he co-sponsored the original proposed Equal Rights Amendment. The amendment didn't pass, and a hundred years later, Congress still hasn't passed an Equal Rights Amendment. In 1924, the same year his wife died, Curtis was chosen as the Senate Majority Leader. According to Idaho Senator William Borah, Curtis was, quote, a great reconciler, a walking political encyclopedia, and one of the best political poker players in America. His political success in the Senate paved the way for him to enter the 1928 Republican presidential primaries. The 1928 Republican National Convention was headlined by three candidates, Charles Curtis, Illinois Governor Frank Loudon, and Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover. Curtis, who attempted to appeal to the common man, was a fierce critic of Hoover, who was seen as a political elitist. Hoover was selected by party leaders as the Republican nominee, which didn't really help to disprove the elitism narrative. In the vice presidential balloting, Curtis easily won the nomination, defeating U.S. Army Lieutenant General Hanford McNiter, U Vice President Charles Dawes, and New Jersey Senator Walter Edge, who grew up in Pleasantville, New Jersey. Meanwhile, the Democratic National Convention chose New York Governor Al Smith as its nominee, with Arkansas Senator Joseph Robinson as his running mate. Herbert Hoover and Al Smith each faced major difficulties from within their own parties. As I mentioned earlier, Hoover faced a lot of backlash from working-class Republicans who saw him as a puppet of the Republican establishment. Smith, meanwhile, faced opposition for not supporting alcohol prohibition, as well as for his association with corruption in New York's Tammany Hall. However, the nail in the coffin for Smith was his religion. The son of an Italian father named Alfredo Emanuel Ferraro and an Irish mother named Catherine Mulvihill, Smith was a devout Roman Catholic. This made him very unpopular among nativists, and he was trounced by Hoover in the general election, earning just 87 electoral votes to Hoover's 444. 
in 1929, Herbert Hoover was inaugurated as the 31st president and Charles Curtis was sworn in as his vice president. Hoover, a native of West Branch, Iowa, became the first president born west of the Mississippi River, and coincidentally, Curtis became the first vice president born west of the Mississippi. As vice president, Charles Curtis liked to pay homage, sometimes even jokingly, to his Native American heritage, decorating his office with tribal antiques and even wearing a large headdress in some photographs. But Curtis's political prowess would be no match for what would happen next. Just eight months into Herbert Hoover's presidency, the New York Stock Exchange crashed. Hoover took a very laissez-faire approach to the ensuing Great Depression, refusing to involve the federal government in relief efforts. Curtis, meanwhile, spoke in support of a five-day work week without any wage cuts to soften the blow of the Depression. Although the Great Depression was basically inevitable due to the economic policies during the Roaring Twenties, many have and still do blame Hoover's inaction for worsening the crisis. When the 1930 midterm elections rolled around, Republicans tried to gauge the nation's support for Hoover. While the party lost several seats in Congress, overall support for the Republican Party didn't fall as much as expected. However, while campaigning for Republicans in Congress, Vice President Curtis made one fatal mistake. While being interviewed by a journalist, he said, and I quote, good times are just around the corner. This statement, which is often falsely attributed to Hoover himself, was far from the truth. The next decade would be an era of high unemployment rates and massive stock price declines. With this statement, Hoover's presidency became forever known as a failed inept administration. In 1932, the Hoover-Curtis ticket was renominated by the Republican National Convention. The Democrats, meanwhile, selected the wildly popular New York Governor Franklin Roosevelt as their nominee, with Texas Representative John Cactus Jack Garner as his running mate. In the general election, Roosevelt defeated Hoover in a landslide, earning 472 electoral votes to Hoover's 59. With his political career now over, Curtis remained in Washington, D.C., where he went back to practicing as a lawyer. On February 8, 1936, Charles Curtis passed away at the age of 76 after suffering a heart attack. He is buried next to his wife in his hometown of Topeka, Kansas. Until January 20th, 2021, he will remain the only non-white person ever to serve as Vice President of the United States. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. Yes, Kamala Harris will be breaking barriers when she is sworn in, but now you'll always remember that Charles Curtis was the first person of color to be Veep. 
If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.